Good morning. Today we return to our study in the book of Luke, and our scripture reading is from Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 40, and continuing through the end of the chapter. And it says, on the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. Then a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. As Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe, and immediately the bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked, and everyone denied it. And Peter said, Master, the whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, Someone deliberately touched me, and I felt healing power go out from me. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking to her, a messenger arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and he told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But when Jesus heard what had happened, he said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Have faith, and she will be healed. When they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, James, and the little girl's father and mother. The house was filled with people, weeping and wailing. But he said, stop the weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him because they all knew that she had died. Then Jesus took her by the hand and said in a loud voice, my child, get up. And at that moment, her life returned, and she immediately stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were overwhelmed, but Jesus insisted that they not tell anyone what had happened. This is the Word of God. Amen. Pastor Eric. Thank you, Craig. Appreciate that. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Calvary. Uh, it's a beautiful, radical story that we will look at today as we begin this new series, as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke. But we begin this new series called, Who is this? Who is this? And there, people are asking this question in this segment of, of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is doing these miracles again. He's beginning to explain a little bit more about like why he has come and how he'll die and rise again. The transfiguration happens within this part of the scripture. And people are asking, who is this man? What is the deal with this guy? This guy, there's a lot going on. Who is he? And it's a question that they were asking. And it's a question that we should be asking even now. Who is this? Who is Jesus? A question that you should be asking for yourself to be able to answer that question. Who is Jesus? Who is he really? And what has he come to do? And so today, we'll dive into that as we look at this story where these two radical healings take place. There's two miracles that occur, and there's one miracle worker. Jesus is this miracle worker with power over life and death itself. Who is this? And we know the answer is that Jesus is the God of the universe, the Messiah, the Savior. 
But the people of Israel are discovering that. And maybe you're even here discovering that as well. So let's journey through in this series and even in this uh, message today of answering that question of who is this man and what has he come to do? And so we look at these, these, two, these two stories of these, this woman and this little girl who need healing, who are desperate for healing. And we, we start with this man who's coming along and he's needing healing for his daughter who at this point is just sick. Right, And he's coming and he's asked Jesus to come and Jesus is willing, but then there's this interruption, an interruption from this woman. And I bet even at that moment, that man was kind of like, yo, yo, we're, we're going to my house now. Like, what are, what are we doing? Don't stop, Jesus. We need to get going to my house where my daughter is suffering and struggling and she's about to die. And there's this interruption and we see how Jesus even acts within a moment of an interruption. Because who we have and what we have here is this desperate faith of the woman despite the denial of the crowd. Okay, there is this desperate faith that we see in her, who even, it's the disciples really that are denying. Peter and the disciples are like, well, yeah, there's lots of people pressing up against you, Jesus. I don't, know what you're, I don't know what you're talking about, someone touching you, but everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? There's this denial, but she has this desperate faith in the midst of all of this. And this desperate faith that kind of like leads towards, I love this, this image, this picture where you see her probably like kind of striving and clawing and reaching out amongst the crowds just to be able to touch the hem of his garment, the edge of his cloak. And uh, we'll talk a lot more about that. But first, let's just talk a little bit about what's going on um, with this woman, all right? And now, uh, we're, we're going to talk about some of these issues, and it has parts of the human body involved in this. And guess what, guys? You're going to be okay. All right? We're going we're gonna to walk through this, and you're going to be fine. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, we're going to talk about some stuff. So, like, why is this, like, well, how is this affecting her life? What's going on with this woman? You have actually some Bible verses even about what, like how they were supposed to handle this or what was going on here. And the first is in Leviticus. Okay, Leviticus 15. If you're just curious about like Bible verses about bodily discharge, that's the, the chapter little title in my Bible. It's pretty cool, you know? Yeah, it's just some interesting light reading. Um, but you have, you have here, it says in verses 25 to 27, this is, this is the text here on it. If a woman has a flow of blood for many days that is unrelated to her menstrual period, or if the blood continues beyond the normal period, she is ceremoni ceremonially unclean. As during her menstrual period, the woman will be unclean as long as the discharge continues. Any bed she lies on, any object she sits on during that time will be unclean, just as during her normal menstrual period. If any of you touch these things, you will be ceremonially unclean. You must wash your clothes, bathe yourself in water, and you will remain unclean until evening. Okay, now, you're probably like, okay, weird, why, what? And uh, those are valid questions. Um, but so a little bit of this is that there were these different things that you would do that would make you unclean ceremonially. There's a difference between sin and having this sort of ritual uncleanness. Now, like, because you could touch a dead body and you would be unclean. But if you're Let's say your mother dies and you're there and you're helping in the situation and you're even helping prepare her body. 
you haven't sinned, but you have a, a moment of being ceremonially unclean. And you have to go through a period of cleansing, which includes just like even going bathing in water, going into a mikvah, into like a ritual cleansing process, and then a little period of waiting. And then you can be able to like re-enter into both society and worship and things like that. Now, um, there's like, I could just do like a long seminars on like everything about this, but just to understand like some differences between that and like this is not a sin where that would require at that time animal sacrifice, the atonement for sin that had happened. So this isn't sin, it's just this ritual um, cleanliness sort of issue. And, but that, that issue had a big effect on this woman's life. And part of that was that she sort of, because like she couldn't get out of being unclean. If she were to do these things, she would go through these processes, but she continues to have this issue of this bleeding. And so she's perpetually unclean for this entire 12 year period. Now, what you have to understand is that like she couldn't touch anyone or be touched by anyone for that 12 years. Now, remember, even if she sat on something, that object would then be considered unclean. And so imagine, though, the, the isolation. Imagine that, that lack of physical touch and, and the experience of community and love and relationship with people. She wasn't allowed to go into worship in the synagogue or the temple. She was perpetually unclean. This woman was suffering and struggling. Imagine the, the psychological effect on this, let alone just the physical um, struggle that she had every day, just dealing with the, the issue of this bleeding for just always, always for 12 years, 12 years. She was even supposed to announce as she would walk around, unclean, unclean, and had to announce that she was coming and that people would know so they could stay away from her to not be unclean themselves. It even said, though, that the part of the shouting unclean was not just so that people could stay away, but so that those who heard it could also then pray for her, pray for a person that is shouting this unclean. But I'm sure like anything with like a good intention behind it like that leads to it being lived out in some probably pretty negative ways by, um, by our, our human nature, as even Matt discussed earlier. Um, but so, so she's dealing with all of this, and it's just, it's heavy, heavy what this woman is dealing with. And she could find no cure, it said. Now, this story is also in a couple of the other Gospels as well, and Mark talks about this. When Mark talks about it in his Gospel, it says that she spent all her money and suffered many things at the hands of physicians. And it's funny that Luke, the doctor, doesn't really, like, delve into that whole bit, you know? He's kind of like, ah, oh, let's just downplay the whole physicians, couldn't figure this out thing that well, uh, or suffering at the hands of the physicians. But um, there were some crazy things that rabbis would do to help people in this uh, condition. Now, you can imagine just even the, whatever like the medical field stuff was like 2,000 years ago, but then you get into some of these like rabbinical traditions to try to help them. And I was reading, and I have this, this uh, one of my favorite scholars, this guy Arnold Fruchtenbaum is a Messianic Jewish scholar who um, just like has these pages and pages of things that would happen to people in these sorts of situations. The first thing that they would have this woman do was that she was supposed to boil Persian onions in red wine and then take that cup of red wine with boiled Persian onions and then uh, she's supposed to drink it and then a man comes up to her and yells, cease your discharge. Stop it. 
<laughs> and that's supposed to be like how it's supposed to be cured. And if that didn't work, the next step is she's supposed to take that wine and go sit at the crossroads of the town. And then while she's just sitting there drinking this innocently, uh, a man is supposed to come up from behind her and frighten her and say, cease your discharge and kind of scare it out of her, all right? And then it continues that she's supposed to drink it with saffron and cumin and fenugreek spices within the wine and do the same thing. And every single one ends with a man yelling, stop it. <laughs> so it's just like unbelievable what, what these people would do. And uh, you could see uh, just the way that even like, it, it's crazy, and so you laugh, but just the suffering these women had to go through with this. There were eight then more steps of doing that, so 11 steps. And if it didn't work, they were kind of like, well, well, I don't know. And so then she's just in this state of being. And so this woman, this is where she is. This is what she's going through. And this is the sort of society and how society would treat her and the shame of sitting at the crossroads of the town and having men repeatedly yell at her, and then she's just supposed to live her life. And so this woman, imagine the desperation She's desperate for hope, desperate for a change, desperate for anything that can bring some, some peace, that can bring some relief of what she's struggling with, both physically and emotionally, relationally with people. She is lacking so much. And I know that each one of you come here today, and we all come here with something that we are desperate for, something that we are struggling with, something that that we need to find hope in. We're desperate for something, a change in our lives. And that might be a physical need like this, this woman. That might be something along the lines of what she also experienced of a relational lack or a, a struggle or a break or a betrayal that we have in our life and we're desperate for hope in that in some way as well. It could be a financial struggle. It could be anything that we are dealing with that just we are desperate for a change in our lives and we need healing and we are willing to do whatever it takes. And this woman was willing, she was desperate. And so she crawls and she clings and she reaches out to just touch the edge of the garment of Jesus. Now, let's talk a little bit about what was going on with that. I have here a, uh, what is called a talit or a prayer shawl. Uh, this is a Jewish prayer shawl and uh, you have here where um, you can see be worn around the shoulders like this and can be put over the head as uh, in moments of prayer. But this is uh, a prayer shawl would be worn by people and even like you'd see Orthodox Jews today, like sometimes it's like uh, actually incorporated into a shirt that's underneath their clothes where you can see the, the tassels sticking out underneath. Maybe you've seen that before uh, with Orthodox Jews and um, something to put on for prayer and to remember the law of the Lord, to remember the law. And so you've got this, this whole, this prayer shawl, and the end are these tassels that are also called tzitzit, is the, the Hebrew of it. Um, these little tassels with knots in them. Now, this is actually, okay, just so you know, these people like aren't like making stuff up and doing weird stuff. It looks, it looks weird to us, but there are Bible verses about this stuff, okay? So it's important for you to understand that. Deuteronomy 22, 12, we'll just go quick. It says, you must put four tassels on the hem of the cloak and with which you cover yourself on the front, back, and sides. And then you go to Numbers 15, Numbers 15, 37. And it says, then the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. Throughout the generations to come, you must make tassels 
for the hems of your clothing and attach them with a blue cord. When you see the tassels, you will remember and obey all the commands of the Lord instead of following your own desires and defiling yourselves as you are prone to do. The tassels will help you remember that you must obey all my commands and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that I might be your God. I am the Lord your God. Okay, so you wear the tassels, you wear the prayer shawl to pray and remember that you must obey the commands of the Lord instead of following your own desires. Maybe some of us need to wear some tassels, right? We need reminders. And that's like what these were for them, was a, a reminder for them to do that. And so you're constantly remembering. You're constantly holding on. You're, you're, you're having this around you as you pray, but also just as you're living your everyday life. And there's all sorts of stuff about these, these tassels, these seat seat. And uh, it says they're tied. Uh, it reminds the, the Jewish person wearing them of God's commands. All 613 of them is found in the Torah. And there's this sort of like extravagant math, as there always is, with sort of these sorts of traditions and, and symbolisms, that there was eight strands in each tassel that are tied in a series of five double knots to symbolize the number 13. And then... Uh, According to Jewish tradition, you'd add 13 to the numerical value of the Hebrew word tzitzit, which is 600, and then that gives a grand total of 613. And you're just like, okay, I don't know how you thought of that, but whatever. That's uh, <laughs> amazing. But it just, like, the point is that it brings you to understand that this is to remember the law of the Lord and that that is for your good and that as you pray and as you talk to God, remember. So even if it's not tassels, do you have something that helps you in your life remember remember God's law, to remember to trust in him, to remember to reach out to him. Now remember that this woman is reaching out to Jesus to touch the edge. Now that, that edge or that border is uh, another Hebrew word called kanaf. That word kanaf also is translated as wing. Uh, so it's the same word used in the Bible for wing, uh, like the wing of a bird. And um, even many verses that talk about how we can find shelter and security under the shadow of his wings, right? Under the protection of his wings. And even under, like considering the, the protection of, of God's covering over, over you, that God is protecting you. And so in prayer, you're remembering that. And Malachi 4.2 is a prophetic verse about the Messiah to come. And it says, in the son of righteousness you'll find healing in his wings, healing in his kanaf. And the kanaf, again, is the edge, the border of his garment, the border of his, likely his prayer shawl or something similar, his robe with these tassels upon it. So she knew, she knew this stuff. But she also had been taught, this woman, that her touch would make someone unclean. So if she were to touch him, he would then become, right, unclean in some way, is probably like on her mind as well, and it's always on her mind. And she reaches out, and it's like, I don't know, you can sort of imagine, like, if I just, I don't want to touch him too much, but I'll just reach out and barely just touch that, that tassel, just touch the, the edge, touch just a portion of him. If I could just reach out and touch him. I've heard about this man. I've heard what he can do and what he has to offer. And maybe he's even the Messiah and there's healing found in his wings. And so she reaches out to touch and she finds that healing. And she hears him even ask in the midst of this giant crowd, who touched me? Who touched me? And you might even think of that question of who touched me as like a, 
a punitive question or something. But it wasn't a punitive question. I think it was kind of similar to the question that you would, you would think of that God asked Adam and Eve in the garden when uh, they're hiding after they've sinned. And God says, where are you? Right? Where are you? Now, God knew where they were. They were hiding, but God knew where they were. And uh, a good friend and mentor of mine says, this is not a question of location. It's a question of the heart. Where are you? It was a question of where was their heart. And I think in this situation, who touched me, he knows who touched him. That's not the point. I think, personally, I think he says this, not to, to question her or demean her for touching him, but to point out with a declaration and a proclamation of a giant of the faith is amongst us. There is a giant of faith amongst us right now in this crowd with Peter and all the disciples and all these people surrounding Jesus. Stop and look at a giant of faith. This woman on her hands and knees desperately reaching out just for the edge of the garment of Jesus. This is who our example is. This is who is a giant of faith amongst you. This is who you can even learn from. Who touched me? Look, it's this woman and that we can all have faith like her. And so he says to her then these beautiful words of go in peace. And he calls her daughter. Daughter, go in peace. The, the turmoil, the struggle, the despair that she has lived in for 12 years, she is immediately healed. And it says that she can feel the effect. She knows that the healing has happened. So as it's happened, as she touches him, she, she feels it and she knows it's happened. And he says, go in peace. Like feel that almost like washing over you right now, how much that would, like what that would mean for her. And imagine with what you're going through in your life, the need that you have, the physical need, the emotional need, the financial need, which connects to the emotional need, right? Like all that stuff as it blends together, whatever that is, the stress, the relational need that you have in your life. And imagine the, the peace of Jesus pouring over you in the midst of that as he provides healing. But he provides his presence, right? He's providing himself in the midst of this too. And he sees her, her faith, this beautiful faith. Because the other words he says there is, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. And I think it's like, this is the... This whole faith thing is like, it's just, it's really hard. We're going to talk about this even a little more, but faith is uh, such a struggle sort of thing to understand, right? What does this mean to have faith? What will faith do for you, so to speak? Like, it's not some like guarantee, right? That you just get what you want because you have, quote unquote, have faith. I, I, I've talked about faith before and I kind of like to think about faith as like applied faith is trusting in the promises of God. So as we apply faith, we trust in the things that God has already promised. Like the story of Abraham and Isaac, where God says to Abraham, go and climb this mountain and sacrifice your only son who you've long awaited for. Abraham knows that God has made a promise to him of many generations through this son, this specific son, Isaac. He has made a promise through him. So as he goes up that mountain, he doesn't know how God will provide, but he knows God will. 
God will make a way. So it's applied faith of trust. I'm going to take these steps of obedience and trust with faith in God, knowing I can trust in his promises. The same as those disciples on the boat when they're crossing to the other side and a storm comes and they're terrified and Jesus says, where is your faith? Because he said, look, I said we would make it to the other side. Trust. Applied faith is trusting in his promises. Now, that's not trusting in the, pro like, trusting in my desires, right? That's why we have to wear the, the tassels to remind us of what are the desires, the laws of God, the ways of God, rather than just our own desires, and so we don't always get what we want or we don't always get our desires, but we trust. So it's part of what faith is. We'll, we'll keep talking through this a little bit more. But there was even like a sort of legend that many people believed that these tassels held power. Okay, like the tassels had special powers. Not Jesus' tassels, but just tassels. There's even this like legendary story of this rabbi uh, who they said like somehow his tassels uh, were able to make the, the rain come in a time of drought. And the rabbi knew it was God's power and not the tassels, but the keep, people kept attributing the power to his prayer shawl's tassels. And maybe much like this woman, and even maybe much like the way we see, see Jesus say, your faith has made you well, we think that we can be healed somehow by conjuring up faith, conjuring up tassels of faith that will get us what we want, but it's always and only in the power of God and it's in the will of God. And so we have to trust. We trust in his way. All right, now, I know there's still like a lot of questions within that. And we all, honestly, I'll be super honest with you. I will never answer your every question with the why. Does God do this and why God doesn't? We just won't. But there's a level of trust that we have to place in him of his will in his way. But let's, let's continue a little bit to think about um, this, this other story. And then we'll kind of process through a little bit more of that. Because you've got the, the father then, this father Jairus, 12-year-old daughter, and he has this determined faith. He's a leader of a synagogue, uh, you know, so he's this respected man in the community, and he comes to Jesus, who probably was like kind of controversial at some level to come to Jesus. Like, who's this guy? Is, is this guy like saying he's Messiah and stuff? Like, I don't know. He hasn't fully come out with all of that, but but I'm sure he was like looked at with a little bit of skepticism. But when your 12-year-old daughter is dying, you don't care. You have a determined faith that goes despite no matter what anyone else is saying and despite even the laughter, what we see in the grieving crowds at their house. And in these stories, you know, you've got these, these differences. You have uh, these kind of contrasts and similarities. You have this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. You have this girl that's 12 years old. Both of them are considered unclean. When she dies, when this little girl dies, she is considered unclean. The woman was unclean, and they're both healed with the touch of Jesus. And he, she, one is daughter, and one is called daughter, as he speaks with these tender, tender words to both of them. And um, this girl, it's interesting, like this girl isn't even... She's not even alive to express her faith, okay? So for her to be healed, she's not expressing some sort of faith. But her father is coming with faith in some sort of way to Jesus with, with desperation and determination to come to him. His precious daughter is dying. I need you, Jesus. I need you to come to me. And just, again, I, I, I refer to it, but imagine you've got him. Like, you're like, yes, I got him. I got the, the healer. I've got the miracle worker. Let's go. And then this woman interrupts, and you're just like, stop, like, I've got to go. And then you find out your daughter's dead. Does this guy just look with anger 
and disdain? I mean, is he having this a moment of looking at this woman with, with anger in the midst of like her incredible victory? I even sometimes wonder, like, what, how did she respond to that? She's been healed, and then all of a sudden she finds out this little girl's dead. Is she kind of freaking out? Did she follow and find out what was going on? Maybe. But like, there's so much going on in the sort of the drama of this whole story. But then Jesus arrives to this home, and he's like, she's just asleep. She's just asleep. Even though she is dead, we, we know she is dead. It says her spirit returned to her after she is healed. But this is the way that Jesus is speaking about this. And the way Jesus speaks to this little girl, we, we read in, in Mark, I think it is, where he says, it, it's in Aramaic. He says, Talitha kum. Talitha kum, which is an expression in Aramaic, which means, hey, little kiddo, get up. It's time to get up this morning, you know? Hey, hey, little one, rise up. It's time to get up. It's just like kind of like what a father would say to their child when, when it was time to get up in the morning. And it was that kind of tender, childlike almost language, very tender language towards this child. And he says, she's just, she's just asleep. Most of the time, the Bible, when it speaks of asleep as dead, it's talking about believers, talking about believers, because we are in this state, like a, as we die, we're in a temporary state, let's say, right? Like a, a temporary state, that this is not what, where we're at. That physical life has ended, but our eternal life continues on and on and on, and that we are alive in Christ forever. It's just a suspension of physical activity, this moment of sleep that he refers to, uh, even though she is dead. And again, these expressions of, he says, don't be afraid. Have faith. Trust. I'm here. I'm here with you. I'm here to heal. And he does. He touches her and she arises. In the midst of people laughing, thinking this is ridiculous, Jesus heals this precious little girl. So these, these statements, your faith has made you well. Don't be afraid. Have faith. How are we supposed to do that? What does that look like to have faith in the midst of these sorts of moments, because they both have fear, but he's kind of he's ministering to their fears and he's ministering to their needs in the midst of this. Like I, I think about some things in my life where um, moments, because it's like again this this struggle of what does that mean? Because we're never guaranteed. Like there there were likely lots of people that day that died, the day this little girl was brought back to life. There were probably hundreds and more of people that died that day. But Jesus came and for whatever reason that he chose to bring that little girl back to life again. Because the miracles of God, the miracles of Jesus that we see here weren't necessarily, the purpose wasn't just to meet that need of that person, but was to proclaim who Jesus is. Who is this man? He is the one that has power over life and death the power over a 12-year illness. I can come and change anything and everything. He's proclaiming who he is. And then he's, he says, have faith. And so we're like, oh, I want to have faith. And I remember when I was a little kid, I used to, um, I was like a good, nerdy little Christian kid. And I'd go, I lived near the beach. And I'd go to the beach. And I'd stand on a rock. And I'd be like, I know I can walk on water. I know I can. I know I can. I know I can. I know I can. And I'd get up on the rock. And I'd go, sink, right? Like into the water. And I'd just be like, ah, and I'd try again. I did it over and over and over again. And I'm like, I don't know what that means because I believe that he can do it, but why won't he right now? You know, and it's a silly sort of illustration. But I even remember I've talked about, I've 
remember praying for my mom when she had this heart condition. And I believe God like, brought miraculous healing to this heart condition that my mother had. And then several years later, my mom died of Alzheimer's. And so you're like, okay, well, God is like doing something in the midst of a moment. Maybe he's trying to, well, whatever his will and way and purpose was in that. But we all, we all suffer as sin has come into the world since the fall, we all suffer and we're frail in our physical bodies and our emotional minds and hearts. We suffer and we struggle. There is suffering in this world. But we know that we just, we have to pursue Jesus with our desperate hope. He might change the circumstances and he might sit with us and just stand next to our bed and hold our hand. And maybe we don't get healed in that moment but he's there with us. And that's the image I think that we have of our God with us no matter what. He is with us there in those moments. So trust in the promises of God. Believe what he has said he will do. But have the perspective that this life is a blip. It's a moment. And he has created a perfection for eternity that we will be with him. With new and glorious bodies will there be no more crying no more pain, no more suffering. He's created an eternity to be with him forever and ever. Of all those things, they'll be washed away. So here, in the here and now, we will have suffering. And in the midst of that suffering, we know that God is with us, with us, tending to us, caring for us, holding our hand. So I just encourage you to reach out with whatever your desperate hope is. Whatever your desperate hope is, whatever your need is, be determined to be desperate in your faith for God and cling to him, reach out to him, ask him, call upon him in whatever way, in whatever way that you need to, just call out to him for what is, what is your need, what is your desperate hope? Because all of us at some level, like this woman, at some level we've been the outcast and we've been unclean and we are that because of our sin. But we are called son, we are called daughter by the God of the universe. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we are not perfect, while we are unclean, Christ died for us. And God restores us to himself and he makes everything right again that was broken. He makes everything whole that is shattered. And so your identity is not in how you feel about yourself. Your identity is about what Jesus calls you. And he said, I've come for the sick not the healthy. He's come for you in your state of sickness. And so this story, these two stories here, this should be an invitation for us to acknowledge our own uncleanness and to seek healing in faith, to be desperate, to be determined to see Jesus in whatever way then he brings himself to us. But I think it's also a story that's an invitation for us to press into those who the world would see as unclean, right? who we, maybe even the church, would see as unclean, that we press into those people. We don't run away. We don't make them shout unclean and try and stay away from them. We press into them to bring the love of Christ to them as well. And so what I want to invite you to today is we'll have a little time here at the prayer points. Prayer points at the front. I'd ask even um, any like leaders or prayer counselors or whoever that um, is able to come in a moment to the prayer points to pray for people. But to pray in some of this way, to pray healing for yourself or for someone that you love. You think of, like, what is your deepest need and, like, what do you relate to most when you think of this story? 
That woman sought Jesus for herself, and that was blessed. Like, just to come for your own personal needs, that's okay. That's okay. Like, you don't have to be, like, selfless all the time with this. If you've got something going on in your life, in your need, come to the altar. Come to a person up here and just ask for prayer for that. Ask for healing for that. Whatever it is you're going through, that woman was blessed for that. But also this father came for the, the need of his daughter. So if you've got someone else in your life, someone you love and care about, someone you know that you want to come and express faith on behalf of them, just, Lord, please bring your healing work into this person's life that I love and care about. Come and ask for prayer for them. And then I'd also say those mockers and deniers, the people laughing, they needed to just seek Jesus themselves. And so maybe you're one that just is like, you know what, Lord? I'm sick of always doubting. I'm sick of always feeling like you'll never do anything for any of us. Lord, I just want to come and express, like, Lord, meet me where I am. Forgive me for my lack of faith. And Lord, build up faith in me, because any faith that we have is only given to us even by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So come prayer for, your, for whatever, it, kind of whatever you need. Come to the prayer points. Come to the altar. If you have to crawl and scratch and reach out just for the hem of his garment. Let's reach out to Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray now as during this time that we have of just singing and worshiping you through, through song, Lord, that we would worship you through our desperate hearts and our prayers as well. Lord, I pray that each person in here, Lord, I pray for what is that, that desperate hope that they have. But for each person with the struggle, the, the loss, the, the fear, the pain that they have in their lives, God, come, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Spirit of God, descend upon this room. Spirit of God, bring your healing that is healing in your wings. And may we all just rest in the shelter of your strength. And may, Lord, your peace come upon your people. Whether we experience the physical healing or not, God, I pray in the name of Jesus that your peace would come upon your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing in worship and come forward for prayer, please.